The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. We'll be in Revelation 20. Let's go there now. I have a question of the day, and hopefully by the end of Revelation 20, we will have answered it together as we search the scriptures. And my question for you is what is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? Or to pose it another way, if you had to define the kingdom of God in a sentence, what might you say? If you're struggling in your brain to come up with an answer, that's okay. That's actually a very difficult question, very uh, complex question. From my experience, seminary students struggle with that question. What is the kingdom of God? Not only seminary students, seminary graduates, pastors, Christians who've been walking with the Lord a long time, and rightfully so, the kingdom of God. There are many elements to it, informed by a scripture, and we're going to see some of those today. And the reason I ask that question, what is the kingdom of God, is you have to know what the kingdom of God is in order to fully appreciate Revelation 20, because that's what Revelation 20 is all about. It's about the full revelation and manifestation of the coming future kingdom of God, where Jesus Christ reigns as king over the whole earth, literally on the earth. We saw that last week in Revelation. We looked at chapter 19. One of the main themes of Revelation 19 was Jesus fulfilling his promise that he would come again, and in the future he will. And that's what the portrait is in Revelation 19 of the prophecy of when Jesus returns, the whole world will see him in the sky, and he descends and lands on the earth, destroys his enemies completely. Those who know and love him survive. He comes not just by himself, but he comes with his glorified saints who had died previously and then are in glory. They come with him. And also, in light of other passages in Scripture, we know that not just resurrected saints return with Jesus Christ to the second coming, but also the holy angels. So it is quite an army from heaven that comes down from heaven onto earth. So that's the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the highlight and apex of and culmination of world history that we as saints, as Christians, that's what we look forward to. That is our utopia. That is our age of Aquarius, all these phrases that the secular world uses, looking for a better world, looking for a better end, looking for ultimate purpose in world history. The Bible is clear about that. What is actually going to happen for Christians, it is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it will indeed be glorious. And it's that glorious truth that's supposed to be encouraging and foundational for us as believers as we live in this difficult life, this cursed and fallen world with all of our hardships and all the sin, our very own sin, our frailty, our finiteness, our uh, questions, our fears. We get strength for all of these, to overcome all these issues by faith from God. And faith only comes through the truth of Scripture. That's how we grow our faith and feed our faith. That's how we uh, cultivate stability in our life. So what a privilege to go to God's Word and one of the greatest truths that we can think about, meditate on, look for, hope for, live in light of is the true coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that in fact is a reality. That's where all of human history is headed. It's kind of a secret. Nobody seems to be talking about it. Even fewer believe it. I'm talking about in the world. But it's not a secret. It's been revealed in Scripture for millennia. It's right there. It's plain as can be. God in his grace has tried to communicate this to a sinful fallen world, telling them there is ultimate hope in this world. And it is the glorious coming of the majestic, resurrected, all-powerful, sovereign, perfect, gracious, merciful, holy judge, Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. And believing in that, that's at the heart of being a Christian, being a believer. And that should be our foundation. That should be our motivation. We need to live in light of Christ's coming. So we saw that in Revelation 
19. The book of Revelation, for the most part, is chronological. That's one of our hermeneutical principles that I've been asserting over and over again. It's not cyclical. It's not repetitive. It's not, they call it recapitulation. It just keeps saying the same thing over and over again. It, it's not timeless. It's chronological. Chapters 1 through 3 happened historically when Jesus appeared to the Apostle John in 95 AD, 2,000 years ago, and wanted to encourage John and the local churches that were being persecuted at the time. That came first. And then chapter 4 and 5, John was allowed to see a vision in heaven. He was caught up to heaven, and God allowed him there as he saw God the Father on the throne and Jesus the Lamb of God in glory. He was prepared for what was yet to come, which would be chapters 6 through 19, really, and that was a seven-year coming tribulation. And we've seen all the details of that. And that is yet future. It hasn't happened. We're not in the middle of it. It didn't happen in 70 AD. It is clearly yet to come. That's even John's terminology we saw already after these things in the future. And uh, that seven-year tribulation really is divided into two. The first three and a half years, Jesus called it birth pangs, preparatory times. Judgment, yes, but not as bad as it's going to be. But it's a warning, and it's preparatory. Birth pains, Jesus said in Matthew 24. And then that reaches a climax three and a half years into it at the midpoint. And then the last three and a half years of that seven tribulation, Jesus called it the great tribulation. And the details are given in depth in Revelation 6 through 19. So that is yet future. And then after that seven year tribulation, the glorious return of Jesus Christ. We saw that last week in Revelation 19 with his second coming, fulfilling all of those Dozens and dozens and dozens, really, of Old Testament prophecies that the Messiah would reign on the earth in glory, not as a humble, weak, homeless, vulnerable lamb that was rejected by people, but he will reign in glory as king. He'll be a political figure, he will be a warrior. He will be sovereign. This is a totally different Jesus. And that's after the tribulation. Jesus returns with his saints, and then that brings us to Revelation 20, where we are today. What happens next? Well, God tells us, and God tells us through an angel, through the Apostle John. And it is exciting. So let's go ahead and look at Revelation chapter 20. And this has 15 verses, and we'll just walk through, again, the passage uh, again, emphasizing or highlighting interpretation uh, rules, if you will, or hermeneutical principles. I call them, I know that's a big word. Hermeneutics is just the science of Bible interpretation, which is absolutely essential for a Christian. So we'll highlight some of those, and then we'll take big picture, and then we'll talk about some of the details. But the, the goal is to bring clarity to what God is communicating. Again, God wants us to understand his word. He didn't want the book of Revelation to be completely apocalyptic, esoteric, beyond comprehending and understanding and interpreting, which it, unfortunately many Christians say, and they believe that to be true. Um, I think just the opposite is as clear as can be. As a matter of fact, John the Apostle. When you take introductory basic Greek, either in college or seminary, and you, you want to learn the language of New Testament Greek, for the most part, you always start with the Apostle John. Because his Greek, it's just easy to read, whether it's the Gospel of John, the Epistles of John, and in my opinion, much of Revelation. Just narrative, straightforward, not really complicated in terms of the language itself. And so that's how I've been reading and interpreting Revelation. Thank you, by the way. Many of you, last week I gave an appeal to, in light of the uh, Revelation 1-3 that said, Blessed are those who read, hear, and obey the book of Revelation, God will bless you if you did that. And I asked you, have you had any blessings? And some of you sent me some blessings. Those were incredibly encouraging. Uh, God's word is powerful. Keep doing that. Keep being blessed. And hopefully this, these truths in Revelation 20 bless you. Uh, before I go to the details of Revelation 20, I do want to lay the foundation a little bit. And we'll start in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. I'm just going to read one verse there. Daniel the prophet, one of our, again, one of our interpretive rules to be aware of. You can't fully appreciate and understand the book of Revelation unless you're familiar 
with the Old Testament. Because Revelation has anywhere from 450 to 500 references or allusions to the Old Testament. So it's based on the Old Testament. It's a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Particularly the book of Daniel in many respects. As I've said, Revelation is the book of Daniel part two. When it comes to a lot of these interesting, somewhat cryptic prophecies about the future and in particular the end end of the age. So look at Daniel um, in your about the middle of your Bible, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. Daniel was a Hebrew or a Jew, prophet of God, and he lived about 600 B.C. in the days of Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon when Nebuchadnezzar came over and attacked Jerusalem, took Jerusalem, and then took many prisoners, killed many Jews or Israelites, and then captured some as slaves, and Nebuchadnezzar took several young Jewish men as slaves, and Daniel was one of those. He was a young man, maybe just a young teenager when he was taken as a slave in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. And then he was in the court of Babylon, and God great, graciously protected him, and he, he was there in Babylon as a prisoner for 70 years, and at times had wonderful privileges, being second only to the king as a counselor, while at the same time having times of trial where his life was literally on the line and thrown into a lion's den and threatened to be killed and arrested. But God was gracious to him. God used him as a prophet during that time to the various kings of Babylon over the course of almost 70 years. And here's one of the prophecies given through Daniel. Keep in mind, this is about uh, 600 years before Christ. And Daniel says this, Daniel 2, and he's talking specifically about the end of the age, the future that coincides with Revelation 6 through 19. In the days of those kings of God of heaven, in the, wait, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. There it is. God is, this is a future act. Did God establish a kingdom with Israel, beginning with Moses, that lasted up until the time of Daniel, from 1400 B.C. to 600 B.C.? Yes, that is not what he's talking about. This is a different kingdom. Well, was this prophecy fulfilled when Jesus came the first time? Jesus talked about the kingdom. No. Because Jesus didn't do what is prophesied here in verse 44. It says, in the future, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. Did Jesus set up a kingdom, a literal kingdom, on the earth that would never be destroyed? No, he didn't do that the first time. But this is going to happen in the future. And I wanted to highlight this verse because this is what Revelation 19 and 20 is talking about. This is the fulfillment of it. This kingdom will never be destroyed. And that kingdom in the future will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. And then in Daniel chapter 7 and other verses, Daniel makes it even more clear that that kingdom is in the future at the end of the days when the ancient of days, God himself, will establish a kingdom and he will anoint or appoint the Messiah to rule over that kingdom. And it specifically says, and the kingdom will be given to the saints. The saints will overcome the Antichrist at that time, and the saints will inherit that kingdom with the Messiah. That is just crystal clear. This is fulfilled in Revelation 19 and 20. God promised to set up a kingdom. Now, earlier I began by asking you, give me a definition of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. You should know that as a Christian. You should be able to define it. But again, I said it's not easy. Why should I say you should know it? Well, because it's all over the New Testament, and in particular, the Gospels and, and also through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. But what's interesting is the phrase, the kingdom of God, doesn't exist in the Old Testament. Wait, let me say that again. The, phrase, the, key, the technical phrase, the kingdom of God does not exist in the Old Testament, that phraseology. 
which is somewhat surprising, if not alarming. That technical phrase, the kingdom of God, you can't find it. The closest you can find, I think there's one verse that says the kingdom of Jehovah, or literally the kingdom of Yahweh. But the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is not mentioned that way in the Old Testament. Although there was a kingdom of God or a rule of God in the Old Testament, clearly he was the king of Israel. There was the kingdom of Israel. There was the kingdom of Judah. There was the kingdom of uh, the south and the north, northern Israel. There were kings of Israel, the kingdom of Solomon, the kingdom of David, the kingdom of Saul, and so forth. But that phrase, the kingdom of God, the way it appears in the New Testament, does not exist in the Old Testament. That's why this is surprising when you get to the, the New Testament and you open up to Matthew and you see the beginning of the ministry of Jesus and really the beginning of Jesus' ministry began with the ministry of John the Baptist. So in Matthew chapter 3, the first words that we know of publicly out of the mouth of John the Baptist, what was his message? What was he preaching? And in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist declares at the top of his voice, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Luke and Mark say the kingdom of God. So what was the nature of John the Baptist's ministry? What was its content? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Then you go to Matthew chapter 4, the middle of the chapter, and you see the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, and the first words out of his mouth publicly, same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Which is, again, surprising. Well, this terminology is not in the Old Testament stated like this. But if you look at the four Gospels, or particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, over and over again, you just see the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven. It's the same thing. Matthew was speaking to Jews, writing to Jews. He didn't want to offend the Jews, and the Jews already had a practice of not wanting to mention God specifically. They didn't like to say God or Yahweh because they didn't want to violate one of the Ten Commandments that said, don't take God's name in vain. And so instead of saying God's name, they would use words like heaven in place of that. They wanted to protect the holy name of God. And so that's why in Matthew, it's the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. And then in the exact parallel passages in the other two Gospels, it's the kingdom of God. It's the same thing. But the point is uh, that Jesus and John the Baptist came preaching, and their message was, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the question is, what is the kingdom of God? As a matter of fact... In Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, Mark summarizes Jesus' entire teaching ministry by saying Jesus came from Galilee preaching and teaching, and his message was, quote, repent and believe in the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. So Jesus tells us even, so there's part of your definition of what is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has something to do with the gospel. And the, the word gospel means good news. And that was Jesus' message. Jesus was preaching about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, which was good news, or the gospel. And that's why when we go into the book of Acts, the apostle Paul, the preacher to the Gentiles, was preaching the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. And there were times where he called it the gospel of the kingdom. So they, are, they do overlap. Well, wait a minute. I thought Jesus said when he was on earth that he told his disciples... Believe in the kingdom, for the kingdom is here and in your midst. Well, that's true. That's an element of the kingdom of God. But Daniel, chapter 2, verse 44, clearly God promised a future coming kingdom. And at the heart of your definition for kingdom, you need to first talk about the king, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the sphere and the domain where Jesus Christ reigns supreme. So that will be the foundation of your understanding of the kingdom of God. Well, where is Jesus now? Is he on the earth? No, he's not. Does he still reign supreme? Yes, he does. If you're a believer, where does he reign supreme? It's spiritually and visibly in your heart through the Holy Spirit. That's why part of the definition of the kingdom of God is the spiritual and visible reign of Jesus Christ as Savior on an individual level. But the, the Bible is clear. There's still a future component where Jesus Christ will not just reign from heaven in absentia, from a distance, invisibly. He will literally be reigning as king in fulfillment of the dozens 
of Old Testament prophecies as the Messiah and the Anointed One on the earth, literally, in power, in glory, as the son or descendant of King David, on a throne, in Jerusalem, in Israel, on the earth, with his saints, with the angels, over the nations of the world, as not just a spiritual leader, but also a political and military leader. And he will be the only king. He will be, in essence, a benevolent dictator over planet Earth. That is yet to come. That is clear. That's all over the Old Testament. I can't go and read all the verses. There are so many. But there is a future, literal element to this kingdom manifestation that is yet to come, that we haven't seen yet. Too many prophecies yet to be. Listen to this from just Jeremiah. Prophecy about the future end of the days of this coming kingdom. In Jeremiah chapter 3, writing 600 before Christ, 600 years, God says to disobedient Israel, who is all scattered all over the world, and will be scattered all over the world all throughout history, that's true today, God makes this promise to Israel, return, O faithless sons. He's calling Israel to repentance. Jeremiah 3.14. God makes this promise. I will bring you to Zion. In the future, at the end of the age, I will bring it. What's Zion? It's Israel. It's Jerusalem. I will bring you back to Zion. I will bring you back to the promised land. Verse 16. It shall be in those days when you are multiplied and increased in the land. There it is. Israel will be back in the land. Declares the Lord. The believing Jews at this time will no longer say, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. They don't need an Ark anymore. They have Jesus there. It will not come to mind, the Ark won't, nor will they remember it, nor will they miss it, nor will it be made again. Why? Because verse 17 says, at that time in the future, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. Because that's where the King, the Messiah, is going to rule, literally, on the earth. Jeremiah 23 same thing, end of the age, about the future. God makes this promise. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock, that is Israel, from out of all the nations or all of the countries of the world where I have driven them and I will bring them back to their pasture. I'm going to bring Israel back to the land. That is a promise at the end of the age. And they will be fruitful and multiply. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. That's the Messiah. I will raise up the Messiah, who will be a son of David, emphasizing that he will be a king. God made a promise that a king will come from the loins of David and reign as king forever on the earth. Jesus is yet to fulfill that promise. He's not reigning as the king of David in heaven right now in fulfillment of this promise. This is a literal promise on the earth, on a literal throne. So in that day I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king. He will act wisely. Excuse me. He will do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord of righteousness. And then I could go to Zechariah 14 that says the same thing. He will land on the, his feet on the Mount of Olives there in Jerusalem, and he will reign as king. And it says he will be the only one, and he will reign in righteousness. Psalm 2 says the same thing. God the Father is going to give Jesus Christ the nations of the earth to reign over as king, and it is on the earth. Now let's go back to Revelation and just be reminded of this future coming reign that is literal, it's, it's political, it is uh, physical, there's a military component to it. It's not just religious, but it's, it's real and it's literal on the earth and it's future and yet to come. Uh, the promise of the overcomer in Revelation 2 and 3, remember these promises? To he who overcomes, to the one who overcomes, that's every Christian. And all seven overcomer promises are yet future that happen in the future after this life. And one of them was this. He who overcomes in Revelation 2 verse 26, the one who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Are you experiencing that right now? No, you're not. I'm not either. This is yet future. You will have authority over the nations. And, he shall, and you shall rule them with a rod of iron? That's literal. It's future. It's yet to come. You'll rule with a rod of iron over the nations as the vessels of the potter are broken 
to pieces, just as I received authority from my Father. Another one. How's this going to happen? Because God's going to give you his delegated authority from God the Father himself. Revelation 3.21 says, And the one who overcomes, that's a Christian, I will grant to him in the future to sit down with me on my throne. That's a literal throne. You're not sitting there now. This doesn't happen when you die and go to be with Jesus. This is in the future, literally, on the earth. I will grant you to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. And then in Revelation 5.10, one more, where God redeems his people in the future at the end of the age, and all the redeemed are there, and God calls them a kingdom of priests. And he says this about them. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. They will reign on the earth. That's literal. That's why we pray Matthew 6. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. It is not here yet. Thy will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. This is what we look forward to. There is a literal, physical, earthly kingdom yet to come. So let's go ahead and look at more of the details in Revelation chapter 20. By the way, when Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, it says he gathered his disciples together, and one of the first things they did, they were so excited. Our Savior, he's risen from the dead. Look at He's in a resurrected body. He's got scars in his hands and his feet. He is the resurrected Messiah. And they knew the Old Testament, and they knew all these promises from the Old Testament. God promised to send the Messiah, not just as a Savior, Isaiah 53, but also as a conquering king, a military leader. And they knew, well, that hasn't happened yet. That's got to happen. That's why they asked Jesus right there on the spot, Acts chapter 1, verse 6, where they asked Jesus, Jesus, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Right now, are you going to fulfill those literal promises? <clears throat> Excuse me. And Jesus didn't say, oh, no, that's not going to happen. It's all spiritual, man. What are you guys talking about? He didn't say that. All he said was, you know what? It's not yours to know the times and the epics of world history. Just be faithful in what you need to do right now. Sixty years later... Jesus would tell John the Apostle, who was standing there in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, when Jesus was saying to everybody, uh, all of you don't need to know the time, and then, no doubt in Jesus' mind, oh, by the way, I'm going to tell John in 60 years. And that's exactly what Revelation is. This is the timing, the length, and even more details of that blessed, glorious kingdom yet to come. Let's go ahead and look at it. So our chronology is, uh, Jesus comes the second time in Revelation 19. He's with all his saints and with his angels. He slaughters his enemies. He keeps two alive. That was the Antichrist and the false prophet. They are taken prisoner. They are cast into the lake of fire. Alive. And they will be in the lake of fire through the duration of the kingdom on earth, which lasts 1,000 years. Uh, the lake of fire is the second death, eternal hell which was created for the devil and his angels. The first two to go in, apparently, are the Antichrist and his henchmen. So let's go ahead and look at it. Um, Jesus comes, and now uh, we've got chapter 20. Verse, let me divide chapter 20 up in just a three sections as we just read through the narrative now with all of that background. Hopefully this will just make it much easier to follow and understand. And a lot of the details will have been filled in for you. Oh, I need some water. Thank you. i got Beautiful. i got lots of water. So here's, a, here's my basic outline. Uh, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. 1 through 6, we'll just call it the glorification. It's a beautiful scene. Glory. Jesus and his saints reigning in glory. Then verses 7 to 10, after the glorification, is the devastation. There's good news and there's bad news. And he explains what the devastation is. And then after the devastation, verses 7 through 10, we have 11 through 15, and I just call that the damnation. And that's exactly what it sounds like. Thank you. <clears throat> so let's go ahead and look at the glorification that is yet to come. Jesus comes at his second coming. He lands on earth. Headquarters are in Jerusalem, in Israel. And verse 1 begins this way, a vision that John has. And he says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss, and a great chain is in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, 
the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw Satan, or the dragon, into the abyss, demon prison, and the angel shut it and sealed it over him, so that Satan would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw, verse 4, thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. All right, big picture. If you're paying attention, notice that I read the phrase a thousand years six times. Six times. So that is a point of emphasis in this section and in this chapter, a thousand years. Verse 2, verse 3, the end of verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6. So you cannot ignore the thousand years. You can't just dismiss it. The thousand years, um, some of the theological jargon that some of you may, may have heard, some of you may know it, and some of you are confused by it, the millennium, premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, those phrases, don't let those intimidate you. Raise your hand in this room if you've ever had Latin. Oh, look, wow, it's more than I thought. It must be former Catholics or something. Um, <clears throat> or go to classical schools. Um, so millennium is just a Latin word. It's a compound word. Uh, I'm not a Latin expert. I think it's something like mille. That's a thousand-ish. Annum is year, so it's a thousand years. And so that's what the millennium is. It's just a thousand-year period. So uh, we say this is the millennium, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And then there are those terms of just pre means before. Before the millennium, if you're premillennial, you, you believe that Jesus Christ returns the second time before the millennium. And we see that chronologically in Revelation 19. Jesus returns to the earth from heaven, kills his enemies, and then chapter 20 begins. He begins to reign on the earth for a thousand years. Pre-millennial. I am pre-millennial. Why? Because it's just as clear as a bell in the Bible right here. Jesus returns, and then he reigns for a thousand years on earth. If you're a post-millennial, you believe that Jesus Christ returns after the millennium. So, Revelation 19 actually goes after chapter 20, if you're post-mill. So it goes uh, 17, 18, 20, 19, 21, 22, 23, 20, etc. I don't know if that sounds kind of odd, but that's how it works. Um, so post-millennium means Jesus returns after the millennium. Now that's obviously, in terms of hermeneutics, that's not taking Revelation chronologically. It's also not taking Revelation literally. Because a post-millennialist Christian, and they are Christians who know Jesus, uh, they would say, yeah, Jesus will return after the millennium has been established on earth. And they say they believe in a millennium, and a millennium means a thousand, but post-millennial people don't think that the millennium is actually a thousand years. So they really don't believe in a millennium. They just believe in a time period where uh, good things are happening on earth on behalf of Christ, and it could be 50 years or a gazillion years but they call it the millennium because they say the thousand years is spiritual and not literal. I know that we're getting confusing now. But anyway, premillennial, Jesus returns before the millennium. Postmillennial, Jesus returns after the millennium. And by the way, if you're postmillennial, they believe that the kingdom will come on the earth, utopia, if you will, good things on the earth. And then after things get really, really, really good all over the earth and Christians pretty much dominate planet earth, there's a thought for you. Then Jesus will return. It's like we are preparing earth for Jesus' return. We've we got to roll out the red carpet and iron it and get the wrinkles out so that he can return. And to summarize it, post-millennialist people believe that the earth is getting better or at least we can make it better as time goes by. And I've already made an argument that just the opposite happens. According to Revelation 6 through 19, things are going to get worse. And Paul said explicitly in Timothy, oh, by the way, things will get worse and worse. That's really the testimony of history. But that's post-millennialism. We can make 
society better. That's why you need to go out and run for uh, the local school board and, be, and take control of that as a Christian and then get into politics and become a, a senator and hopefully the president. And then you can Christianize society and make Christian laws and Christianize the world. And we've had somebody do that, Pat Robertson, if you're familiar with him, ran for president in the 80s and he actually believed if he won, he literally said he was going to be able to Christianize America. That's a post-millennial view. Uh, but that's completely impractical and unbiblical. As a matter of fact, see, and even if you could Christianize something theoretically through politics in society, like say, say Germany, take, take Germany for example. You got a reformation in the days of Martin Luther and the word of God goes crazy all over Germany and then there's a lot of people in Germany who now know the truth of the Bible and the gospel. And so there's a high percentage of people now hearing the word of God in Germany in the 1500s. Not everybody got saved, but it was a revival and that's what post-mill people are trying to do. But the problem is when all those people die and then bad people move in. Then you end up in Europe in the days of Adolf Hitler where Christianity and the Bible was banned. And so that by 1945 you don't have any Christians pretty much in Germany. And even today in Europe and in Germany, the percentage of Christians who believe in the Bible literally is probably 2% or less. So you can't really practically Christianize society. By the way, that's not our job. That's not our calling. Our gospel is to pre our, our mandate is to preach the gospel. By the way, this earth is cursed and falling apart, according to Romans 8. You can't make it better. God already put a curse on it. We've got to stay focused. It's a spiritual mandate of the gospel. The earth will be renovated in the future, but that's Jesus' job. So you got pre-mill, you got post-mill, and then you got awe mill. Awe means nothing, not. So there is no future millennium that we establish, or there's no future literal millennium on the earth that will happen when Jesus returns. Amill. Amillennial. This is a typical Presbyterian, uh, Lutheran, Catholic. That's their formal doctrine. Amill. Uh, there's no future literal millennium. You don't take Revelation 20 literally. Those thousand years don't mean a thousand years. It's spiritual and figurative. If there is a kingdom, it's happening now. It's never going to be literal. It's actually spiritual and invisible because after all, Jesus did say the kingdom is here and in your midst. And he did say that. But that's not the full, complete definition of the kingdom. There is a literal element to it on the earth. But that's amillennialism. Uh, and if you were to summarize those three positions, I would just say that premillennial, you could legitimately say is pessimistic about the immediate future. I don't think things are getting better. I think they're getting worse. And that's what the Bible says. Paul said that. Things will get worse, culminating in the tribulation and the Antichrist, and then Christ will return and make everything better. So people would accuse me of having a pessimistic view of the future and human history. And I'd say, well, not really. It ends good, glorious. We just have to go through a season. Uh, so pre-mill people are pessimistic. Post-mill people are optimistic Christians. We, man, we can do this. We can change society. A Christian, a, can you imagine Christianizing the NFL? We can have a Christian football league. Replace the American flag with the Christian flag that everybody salutes to. All Christian head coaches, all Christian owners, all Anyway, that's literally the idea of every facet of society, Christianizing it. Instead of tackling, you're very nice, and you just kind of touch them on the shoulder. There's a lot of ways. Anyway, it's just an idea. But it's an optimistic view of life. So pre-mill is pessimistic, post-millennial is optimistic, and then amillennial is just static. In other words, things aren't going to change. They won't get better. They're not going to get worse. This is it. As a matter of fact, amillennial people say we are in the kingdom right now. This is it. To me, that's depressing. I want something more. I want something better. I want something glorious. I want something that was specifically prophesied in the Old Testament that needs to be fulfilled literally. I'm like those apostles in Acts 1.6. Lord, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel on planet Earth like you promised? That's me. And I believe that is yet to come. And I believe that's what John is communicating in Revelation chapter 20. So six times a thousand years. This kingdom will last a thousand years. So let's go through the passage. Just verse by verse now. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. This is a heavenly angel. This is a powerful angel. Uh, this angel is very, it's so powerful, maybe even more powerful than Michael the archangel because he just manhandles the devil. We know that some angels like inferior angels that are good angels, they can't manhandle the devil. We know that from Daniel chapter 10 
and other places. Satan was probably the most powerful angel that we know of, except this one, this holy angel, given the, uh, the power of God, and he's going to manhandle Satan, the most powerful being that we know of. Angel comes down from heaven in the future. He's holding the key of the abyss. Uh, the angel is a spiritual being. He has a key. It, it's, an, it's a real thing, whatever it is, uh, from the abyss. It's the key to the abyss or the, the key that unlocks the abyss. The abyss we already saw in Revelation is demon prison. It's a real place. It's in the spiritual realm. It's a real existence. And this angel has the authority over that abyss, that demon prison. He has a great chain in his hand. Well, how can you have an invisible uh, being with a chain that's physical? Well, angels aren't invisible. When they appear, they're physical. So God is not uh, without... A body, Jesus Christ in glory as God has a physical uh, body. And this angel is a physical angel. And he has some kind of a spiritual chain that's going to do the job. John's just trying to communicate in the language so we can understand. What does this angel do? Verse 2, and the angel laid hold of the dragon. I love that. It's like he grabbed the devil by his hair with one hand. Or his tail. He laid hold of the dragon. The serpent of old. This is just so we aren't confused. He's being emphatic who is the devil or the deceiver, and Satan. What did he do? He bound him. He cuffed him. Grabs him by the hair. Cuffs him. You're already guilty. I don't need to read you your rights. You have none. He bound him and cuffed him for a thousand years. There it is. Verse 3. He, he, so he, he cuffs him. And then he throws him, I love that, like a rag doll. Throws Satan into the demon prison. Then he shuts the door. Not only does he shut the door, he seals it, hermetically sealed. No one can get in, no one can get out. Sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. Repeats that thousand years. It's not symbolic, it's real. Until they're completed. And after these things, after the thousand years, Satan will be released by God for a short period of time. So Satan is going to be confined, bound, chained, imprisoned, locked up, sealed, confined for 1,000 years. In solitary confinement. He will be able to harass and deceive absolutely no one. Remember the book of Job, chapter 1 and 2, where Satan was deceiving and misleading? He won't be able to do that. And for this 1,000-year period, he will not have access to the nations. That's people living on earth who are not glorified in their bodies during the 1,000-year reign of Christ. And there will be people living on the earth in phys physical bodies that are not resurrected bodies yet during the reign of Christ on earth. And they will not be deceived by Satan. So when they sin, and they will, they can't blame it on the devil. The devil made me do it. It's their own sin that lives within. And that's going to happen. But you can't blame Satan. And he's going to be bound during the thousand years. And so, all-mill post people say that um, the thousand years isn't real. It's not literal. Don't interpret that way. And then we ask them, well, wait a minute. Uh, this says that during the millennium, the literal 1,000-year millennium, Satan will be bound completely. And he won't be able to harass or deceive or mislead anybody. That is not true of this age right now. The Bible is clear. 1 Peter 5.8. Behold, Peter said to Christians, your enemy... The devil prowls around, present tense, like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That is not being confined. Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5. They were deceived by Satan. Satan had filled their heart with deception and greed. I could just go on and on with all the, the activities of Satan. First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, where Satan goes around masking presently, masking himself as an angel of light to deceive people. The whole world lies in the lap of the evil one right now, says 1 John 5. Satan is not bound right now. That is yet future. That has never happened. Satan has never been bound. But there's a specific purpose. This time in the, the millennium when Christ is reigning on the earth, it's going to be a glorious time. And part of that glory is that Jesus is going to renovate planet earth. He's going to start it out with a fresh slate of just only believers, glorified and unglorified. And by the way, that pesky, annoying Satan, I'm getting rid of him too. I don't need his annoyance around during my 1,000-year reign. And that's what's going to happen. Verse 4. So Satan will be dealt with for 1,000 years. Uh, then he transitions, and John says, and then he had another vision. And then I saw thrones, 
So these are good thrones, holy thrones, glorious thrones. And they sat on them, and he never gives the name of who they are. There's these thrones. It's not Jesus' throne. It's thrones of, I would say, uh, people who have been given authority by Jesus Christ. Could very well be that throne that he promised in Revelation 2 and 3 to the overcomer. In the future, I will, give, I will let you sit on my throne. I will give you authority. I will let you rule. I will allow you to judge with me and on my behalf. This is a fulfillment of that promise, I believe. I believe these, they who sat on these glorious thrones, and it says that judgment was given to them. That's uh, judicial authority. That's 1 Corinthians 6, judicial authority to rule on Christ's behalf, to make decisions, to rule over the angels, to rule over the nations. I believe these are the same ones who came with Jesus in Revelation 19 who were following him on white horses in their white robes, the saints, because the promise had been given to them. They will sit on thrones, they will rule with him, and judgment will be given to them. It's delegated to them. And and in addition to those who are ruling with Christ on the earth, that would be us. Revelation 5.10 says that uh, believers who have been glorified will reign on the earth. This is your future if you're a Christian right now. Jesus Christ himself is going to delegate your authority. And when the millennium begins, you get to reign on his behalf. And you'll have judicial authority. In addition to that, those who will be joining us are the souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus. These are saints who get murdered during the tribulation. They will be raised at the end of the tribulation. They will be given glorified bodies. They will meet uh, saints who return with Christ at the second coming. And we'll have a beautiful reunion. And we will all get to sit on these thrones and reign on behalf of Christ. Uh, by the way, the martyrs during the tribulation get special recognition here. That's why they're being highlighted. The souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the Antichrist, the beast, or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand and they came to life. That means they were resurrected. That's what that means. And this is after the tribulation. They will be resurrected in physical bodies. They came to life, they are resurrected, and they reigned with Christ, just like we will get to reign with Christ. How long will they reign? They will reign for a thousand years. So that's the third time he refers to the thousand years. So simultaneous is Satan is confined in demon prison, not allowed to harass us during that thousand year reign of Christ. Believers are reigning with Christ in glory on the earth with judicial Authority. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life. The rest of the dead don't get resurrected. Those are unbelievers. Unbelievers do not get resurrected who have died at the end of the tribulation at the beginning of the millennium. They will get resurrected later at the second resurrection after the thousand years. Daniel told us this in Daniel 12. He said basically, big picture, there's two resurrections. There's the resurrection of the Righteous are those unto eternal life, Daniel 12, 2. And those will receive the resurrection of contempt. Then in John 5, we learn more specifically, same thing. The resurrection to eternal life, the resurrection to damnation. Luke says the same thing. He calls it the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. So that's big picture, two categories. Everybody's getting resurrected, and it's either... You are going to heaven or in the presence of Christ or you are consigned to hell forever in a resurrected physical body. So verse 5, the rest of the dead unbelievers did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. But they will be risen from the dead at the end of the thousand years. This is the first resurrection. What is? Uh, The resurrection of the righteous, of the just, of eternal life. That's the first resurrection. The second resurrection is the unjust after the millennium when all the ungodly of the ages are raised at the same time and condemned at the great white throne. But the first resurrection is the general category of the resurrection of the just and the righteous. And by the way, 1 Corinthians 15, I think it's verse 23, Paul said that there's a glorious resurrection coming. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 15, 23. And he said there's an order of resurrection for the righteous. There's a proper order. Each one will be raised in their proper order. There's a sequence. It comes in stages, the resurrection of glory. We don't all get raised at the same time at the end of the age, if we are believers. It happens in order. And he says, clearly, Jesus is the first one to be raised. The next one's, the next one uh, phase of people to be raised were those saints in Jerusalem, according to Matthew 27. 
when Jesus died and rose again, then the next resurrection of the saints will come at the rapture, clearly, according to 1 Thessalonians. The dead in Christ will rise first, and those living, then the next, will be living Christians get resurrected. Then after that, there will be believers who get resurrected like these martyrs when Jesus comes the second time at the second coming before the millennium begins. And I believe that the Old Testament saints are going to be resurrected before the millennium as well. So, that, so it comes in its own order. 1 Corinthians 15, 23. It happens in stages of the, of the righteous. Uh, the second resurrection is just the resurrection of the unrighteous through the ages, which basically happens all at the same time at the great white throne, which we're going to see in just a second. Uh, and the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God, and of Christ, and will reign with him for a thousand years. Here's another blessing. Remember I said there were seven blessings in the book of Revelation? Here's one of the seven. It's like, blessed is anybody. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. What that means is uh, you will be blessed if you are part of the resurrection of the righteous, of the just. And there's only one way to do that, to be a part of that. And that's to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to repent of your sin. To acknowledge to God that you are sinful, you are wicked, you cry out to God and you ask him to forgive your, you of your sin, and you believe that Jesus Christ is the God-man, and that he died on the cross for your sins, and that he, he died as the substitute for your sin, and God the Father poured out his wrath on Jesus on the cross for you, and that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again from the dead, and he reigns as Lord over every person today. And that Jesus is the only way that you can be saved. And it starts with recognizing that God is holy and you are sinful. If you've never done that, you can. If you refuse to do that in this life, you will face the second resurrection, which is just strictly a resurrection of damnation. And so, again, God in his grace, always, to the 11th hour, pleading with sinners to be saved in his mercy. Repent. It's not too late. Blessed are you. Give your life to Christ. Recognize your sin. Be forgiven. Be adopted into the family of God. Recognize that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. And you'll have a glorious future. You'll be given a resurrection body. It will be perfect. It will be sinless. It will be eternal and immortal. And not only that, you'll be given judicial authority, verse 4. And then you'll also be given priestly authority, it says right here. Priestly authority, verse 6. You'll be a judge and a priest. Judge, the right to rule. Priest. Immediate access to God. How glorious. This is good news. Verse 7, when the thousand years are completed. See, this is a, a sequence. These are real numbers. By the way, uh, a thousand years, I don't believe, is symbolic. It's a real number. And I'll, I'll just challenge you with this. Here's a hermeneutical principle. I'm going to... Uh, all millennial, Presbyterian, covenant theologians, Lutherans, Catholics all say, for the most part, on Revelation... All the numbers in Revelation are symbolic, metaphorical, and not literal. What one commentary says. And I would say just the opposite. All of the specific numbers in Revelation are literal. You can't get two more drastically different statements. But it's true. Just a challenge you. Write down, go to every passage, write down the number and see, uh, is this literal or not? A thousand years is no exception. Now, by the way, nowhere in the Bible can you have a number with the word years and it not be literal. It's always literal. Thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. There's a sequence of things happening. The beginning of the thousand years, during the thousand years, at the end of the thousand years, when it is completed. A thousand years. By the way, the first time we see the word thousand years in verse two, uh, if you're a chilia, the Greek word for a thousand is in different forms, chilia, chiliest. If you're a chiliest, you believe in a literal one thousand. That's the Greek word. And the form of a thousand years in verse 2, this is interesting. In terms of the Greek text, it's called an accusative expressing extent of time. It's an accusative expressing extent of time. That's the technical uh, observation on the usage of that phrase. And people who don't believe in a literal thousand years, they don't want to talk about that. They just, well, I don't want to hear that. No, we need to deal with the words as God gave them. A thousand years. But all the numbers in the book of Revelation are to be taken literally. Even the seven heads and the ten horns of the dragon. John's vision, he, he literally saw a seven-headed dragon. Literally. Seven lampstands, seven stars, the 12,000 
tribes, 144,000 of them in total. When John wants to use general and generic numbers, he uses different phrases that are indefinite and non-specific, like myriads upon myriads, or as the sand of the seashore, or for a short time, those kind of phrases, but not specifically. So you can take it at face value. It's a thousand years. Boy, I'm looking forward to that. And then verse 8, uh, oh, look at verse 7. So when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison for a short time, and he will come out, get this, to deceive the nations. <clears throat> who are the nations? Those are people who are populated during the millennium who weren't in resurrection bodies, and everybody that entered the millennium when Christ returned was a believer, and then they have children, and their children have children, and some of those children don't get born again. And there's an accumulation of these unbelieving children over the course of a thousand years, and it is a large group of people across the world. And when Satan is released at the end of the thousand years, he's going to muster them up and deceive them and spearhead a revolt against Jesus Christ, who reigns as the only king in Jerusalem. He's going to try to overthrow him, a coup attempt by Satan himself. So that's what Satan's going to do. Uh, he'll be released from prison, verse 8, and he will come out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth. That means over the whole world. Gog and Magog, that's a reference out of Ezekiel 38 and 39. That just means Israel's enemies, enemies of God. Those were areas in the Middle East, Gog and Magog. Satan wants to gather them together for war. This is a second war. Remember, there's a war, Armageddon, before the millennium, and this is another different war, spearheaded by Satan himself, not the Antichrist. To gather them together for war, the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. See there, when John wants to be non-specific or indefinite, he uses terminology like this. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Two minutes to count. Verse 9, And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in Jerusalem and the beloved city, that is Jerusalem, and fire. so they're about to go to war. They come upon Jesus Christ and they want to take over the city and they want to declare war on Jesus and it says, fire came down from heaven and devoured them just like that. Not much of a war. God just, no patience whatsoever for Satan's rebellion. Devoured them. Verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. There it is. God, according to Matthew 10, Jesus said God created eternal hell for the devil and his angels. And finally, Satan is consigned to eternal hell forever. Right here at the end of the millennium. He will be no more. He will be in eternal hell, the second death, the lake of fire, Gehenna, right here. Fire and brimstone. Where he will experience conscious, eternal, deserved punishment. To the degree by which he is guilty. According to the Gospel of Luke. Where the be Get this. He's thrown into eternal hell where the beast and the false prophet, not got burned up, where they are. They've been there for a thousand years, literally alive and burning in eternal hell. They are still alive and conscious there when Satan is thrown in there. Eternal hell is a conscious existence. That's beyond human capability to imagine or think. That's why God had to reveal it to us through special revelation. They're there where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever. And ever. So it is eternal. That's eternal hell. Satan is there. The false prophet is there. The Antichrist is there. So verse 7 to 10, that's the devastation. So after the glorification of Jesus Christ glorified, his saints glorified, the, the Christian martyrs glorified, the Old Testament saints glorified, ruling with Christ for a thousand years, then there is the devastation that comes after the millennium where Satan is finally dealt with. Uh, look at verse 11 through 14 now, and we'll do the it closes with the damnation in this vision, the damnation. And then John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it. So this is after the thousand-year reign of Christ. Paul comments on this in 1 Corinthians 15. He gives the chronology of eschatological events. Christ must rule. When Christ has ruled and that is completed, he will give the kingdom to the Father. That's where we are. After the thousand-year reign, then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, this is the Father. We saw him earlier in Revelation 4. This is also right out of Daniel. This is God the Father, who sits on the throne, and from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, 
and no place was found for them. Earth and heaven fled away. The first heaven, the cursed earth, gone. Peter says it'll be burned up into nothing. The cursed earth will be done away with because God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth that will last forever. That also will be glorious. So you have the great white throne. God is ready to judge, and he's ready to judge his enemies. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, the great and the small. So they're just called the dead. They are alive. They exist. They're conscious. They're called the dead because they have no spiritual life. These are unbelievers of all the ages. They are the dead. That's Ephesians 2. Every one of us was born dead, spiritually dead. Dead means separation. And when you're not a Christian, you're spiritually separated from God. You're considered dead. And I saw the dead, the great and the small. That's unbelievers, all of them, through all the ages. From Cain to the Antichrist, all of them. They're standing. So the dead are standing. How does that happen? Through resurrection. The dead will be raised. They're standing before the throne. They have to give an account to God the Father. The books were open. There's the book of life and the book of works. God will judge the unbelievers by the book of works. He knows every deed they've ever done in their entire life. Every single one. You are saved by grace. We are all judged by our works. An unbeliever is judged by their own works, which will damn them eternally. Believers are judged, get this, by the work of Jesus Christ. But what about our own works? There's accountability for that that has to do with our rewards. Jesus did our work, and now we are accountable for our rewards in heaven. It's clear in Corinthians. So there's two books. There's the book of works, deeds, and the book of life. Another book was opened, which was, is the book of life. And the dead were judged. Unbelievers were judged. This is future. They're judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. No doubt the first deed, according to the Gospel of John, it's called a work. If you want to do the works of God, then believe in me. If you want to do the, the works or the deeds of God, then believe in me. What's the greatest work a sinner can do is believe in Jesus Christ. That's a work, that's a deed. And that's where it will start. What did you think of the Lord Jesus Christ? I rejected him. I despised him. And that begins the judgment of the rest of their deeds. They're damned. According to their deeds, verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead, and all who were in it. Oh, and by the way, they were judged from the things which were written in the books, not just the book of deeds, but also the book of life. Verse 13, The sea gave up the dead, which were written in it, which is amazing. That's a miracle, because plenty of people die and end up in the ocean, and their body disintegrates, and the uh, fish literally consume their body, and it's dispersed all over. And the question from unbelievers often, or even Christians, is, how does God resurrect the body? Because he's God and he does miracles, and he will. And it's beyond comprehension. God is awesome. So the sea will give up its dead from the ages which are in it. And death and Hades, death is the reality of the termination of life, and Hades is its location. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. That's the grave, in other words. And they were judged... Every unbeliever, every one of them, according to their deeds. And then verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. God, God kills death. Death dies. What that means, he puts, he puts physical death as we know it and spiritual death. He terminates it. It exists no longer. Death is our greatest enemy. That's clear in 1 Corinthians 15. There's mourning that comes with death. There was mourning that was required under the Mosaic law when a fellow Israelite died. You had to mourn. Death is not good. Death is bad. Death is the weapon of Satan. We don't rejoice at death. We rejoice when a believer goes to heaven, but we don't rejoice at the process of death. Death is the consequence of sin. Death is punishment from God. Death is to be mourned and wept over. Jesus wept one time that we know of. It was over death, physical death, of someone he loved. God will do away with that. We're going to see that in the new heaven and new earth where there's no more tears, no more death. Amen? No more death. That's the hope of the Christian. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Hades is also a location of death, and first and foremost, that means separation. When you die, you're separated from the one you love. That's Hades. No more separation. No more distance. No more loneliness. This is the second death it is the lake of fire. It's eternal hell. 
Verse 15, and, and here's another warning from God. And if any, anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life is just the registry of God of those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they've secured eternal life forever. And God knows exactly who is in that book. Some of you who maybe don't know Christ, you might be wondering, if you're taking this seriously, am I in the book of life? Maybe you think you're, maybe you are a Christian, but you're not sure and you have uncertainty. Am I in the book of life? Is God going to erase my name from the book of life? Well, if you're a Christian, he's not going to erase your name. If you're a Christian, you've been born again. If you're a Christian, you received eternal life, which lasts forever. The moment you became a Christian, you received the Spirit of God in living in you, who is called the promise and the seal of your salvation. God's not going to rescind that promise. God doesn't take back his promises. God's promises are not, they're irrevocable. There is no warranty date. Maybe you feel like bad and yucky and question. That's normal. You know, because you're in a fallen world and you are a sinful person and so am I. And in those times we had to run to God, run to his word, run to the Savior, run to prayer. And the word will give you faith and give you clarity on that issue of where you are at with Christ. But those of you who don't know Christ, uh, there is no tomorrow. Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation, says the book of Hebrews. Cry out to him, he'll hear your prayer, and you will be in the family of God. Let's go ahead and pray to the Father. Father, we thank you for this time together and again the time in your precious word and for giving us clarity to a difficult book, difficult visions, a difficult section of scripture, and you've given us clarity because of the Old Testament. You've given us clarity because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit for the Christian who is our teacher. You've given us clarity because of the gift of wonderful Bible teachers through the ages. According to Ephesians 4, you've given gifted teachers to the church. We can understand it because you've made us in your image. Just so many resources we have. We thank you for that. You've given us the gift of prayer where we can ask for clarity as well. And those of us who know you, help us to just stay in chapter 20, reflect and meditate and glory in these wonderful truths that is our sure destiny, our sure future. That it gives us security and peace in you and motivation for sharing this wonderful news with everyone we know who doesn't yet know Christ. We commit it all to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.